All right, before we get into Luke this morning, I have a, a question for you, and I think most of you will probably answer the question correctly. Uh, do you happen to know who the two wealthiest people are today on the face of the earth? Anyone know? One of them? I, I don't know if it was just you or me. I just heard... <laughs> kind of like, it was like the teacher and Charlie Brown talking. That's all I heard. Uh, Elon Musk and... There we go. These two guys right here, uh, $177 billion, uh, according to Forbes for Jeff Bezos, and $151 billion for Elon Musk. And so that's a lot of money between these two guys. And, uh, you know, we would think that they absolutely are the wealthiest men who have ever lived. Uh, but do you know that when you take uh, the, the adjustment for inflation, uh, that they don't even come in the top five when you look at history? Some might think Rockefeller is number one, but he's not. He didn't even make the top five. Uh, his estimated uh, income uh, with the adjustment to inflation is between 460, I'm sorry, 360 and 412 billion dollars, which is a tremendous amount of money. But not even he was in the top five. And Rockefeller, if you're not familiar with who he is, if you've ever seen in New York Rockefeller Center, that is named there after him. And uh, he is famous for answering this question. Uh, how much money does it take to make a man happy? His reply, just one more dollar. Okay? And that uh, shows that you really never have enough. Well, again, he didn't make the top five. Let me show you the top five here. And before we get into this, I want you to think about this question as we look at each one of these slides. Uh, listen to the list that I'll show you. And I'll put up a, a picture with um, each of these uh, in the top five. And see if you can figure out what the common denominator is between them. There is something connecting all of these people who are considered the wealthiest people who have ever lived. Uh, number five uh, is King Solomon. You might think he was number one, uh, certainly for wisdom, but for wealth, according to one financial website, uh, says that he is number five at right around $2 trillion of wealth. Uh, it says here, according to the Bible, King Solomon ruled from 970 to 931 B.C., during this time, he said to have received 25 tons of gold for each of the 39 years of his reign, which would be worth billions of dollars today. So you think about everything he amassed, all of the taxes, the trade, and they say it surpassed perhaps $2 trillion. Uh, then we have number four, Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus, the emperor of Rome, estimated $4.63 trillion in wealth. Number three, Akbar I. Uh, his peak net worth, $21 trillion. says he was renowned for his lavish lifestyle and patronage of the arts. This emperor conquered hundreds of thousands of square miles of territory and ruled over much of the Indian subcontinent. And so uh, his, uh, it says he controlled about 25% of the world's gross domestic product at the time, which was right around $21 million. That's a lot of money. Number two, Emperor Shenzong. And it says here that he ruled China from 1067 to 1085 during what is known as the Peaceful Prosperity and the Primary Abundance Era. He controlled about 30% of global production, the equivalent of over $30 trillion. Uh, number one on this list, Genghis Khan. The estimate here is hundreds of trillions. 
You know, when you listen to what this man owned, it says the fearsome Mongol leader conquered a mind-blowing 12 million square miles between uh, 1206 and his death in 1227, more than anyone else in history. It says, but while his hordes pillaged their way through huge swaths of Eurasia, uh, the territory that is now worth trillions of dollars, he didn't actually hoard his spoils. Instead, he chose to redistribute it uh, to those in his territories who were his subjects. When you think about that, hundreds of trillions of dollars. So let me ask you this question. What is the common denominator between all of these wealthy people? Anyone know? They were rulers, yeah? Anyone else? They're dead, that's right. <laughs> that is right. They are all dead, okay? Caleb? Okay, it's all in the trillions. They were all rulers. Yeah, but the one I was looking for, you're not wrong. The one that I was looking for is they are all dead. Not one of them took a penny with them. Everything was left behind. And even though Genghis Khan, as it said here, he distributed that wealth to his subjects, in the end, it was all redistributed. None of it ended up going with him into the afterlife. And I think it's probably safe to say that not only these five individuals, but when you look at the wealthiest people who have ever lived, it's probably safe to say that many of them, if not most of them, were not content with what they had. Like Rockefeller, they wanted more, just one more dollar, just a little more. Now, why do I share this with you? I share this with you because as we come back to Luke chapter 12 this morning, we're going to see Christ speaking about covetousness about loving the things of the world, loving the wealth of the world, loving the possessions of the world. And this morning, Jesus, through his text, through his word, is going to teach us that life is much more than earthly possessions. That, that to think that you can be truly satisfied through possessions is to be foolish. It's an act of futility. You will never have true satisfaction if you look at the things of this world as your primary pleasures. And if you think also that you control even a second of this life, it demonstrates how little you know about God, how little you know about life from one day to the next. And so Jesus teaches us this morning that to, to desire and, and pursue the treasures of this temporal world will cause us to lose focus of what is truly valuable. You know, everything that we possess, they are gifts from God. Whatever it is that we have, our family, our friends, the wealth that we have, the, the health, the cars, the homes, our jobs, whatever it might be, God has truly blessed us. But we want to make sure that while we're good stewards of these resources, that we never allow the possessions to become the primary purpose and pleasure of our lives. There's absolutely nothing wrong with having nice things. There's nothing wrong with working hard and investing and, and uh, enjoying this life. But when those things become the main things, and they become sinful things, and we need to be very careful of that. When we look at Luke chapter 12, let me read verses 13 through 21, and then we'll see how this breaks down for this morning. It says, someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. But he said to him, man, who appointed me a judge or arbitrator over you? Then he said to them, Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed, for not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. Then he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself, saying, 
What shall I do, since I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, This is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have, made, or you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So as we look at this passage this morning on covetousness, what we're going to see here is Christ teaches us in three ways. First, we see the principle. The principle we'll find in verses 13 and 14. And then we will hear a proverb in verse 15. And finally, a parable that is in verses 16 through 21. So the principle, the proverb, and the parable. Well, let's look at the principle about covetousness. Okay, verse 13 marks a bit of a transition here. If you go back to chapter 12, verses 1 through 12, and back into chapter 11, Jesus was warning his disciples about the leaven of the Pharisees, hypocrisy. And we've been focusing on that for several weeks as we were in Luke. Here, though, there is a bit of a change. The focus is shifting. It shifts from hypocrisy to, to the treasures that you have as a person in this world. And as we see in the text to come, in the weeks to come, the real focus is going to be you need to trust in God. You need to rely on him for the things that you need. And when you trust in him and you seek his kingdom, these things will be added to you. Therefore, you don't need to be anxious. And so this marks that transition in the Gospel of Luke. And, and so as we look at this, there is a request that is made of Jesus. The, re the request comes here in chapter 12, verse 13. We don't know who this man is. He's only identified as someone in the crowd. So this man in the crowd comes to Jesus and says, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. Again, we don't know who he is, and who he is is really not that important. What we do know is that this man came to Jesus. He saw Jesus as a rabbi or a teacher. And in his mind, he has a dilemma. And he wants to go to someone who is respected, someone who has some authority, and he brings the problem to him, and he says, I want you to solve this. Tell my brother to give me my fair share. Now, that might seem strange, but in this culture at this time, to go to rabbis to, to have them mediate various issues was not uncommon especially if it pertained to the Mosaic Law. And if you go back and you read the Old Testament, you will find that there are many instructions about how to deal with certain situations. There are instructions on how to deal with an inheritance as well. We're not going to read them this morning, but if you look at Numbers chapter 27, verses 1 through 11, there is some very detailed instruction on how to divide an inheritance, who gets what, how you divide that between uh, the, the uh, siblings of the father or the mother who passed away and now the possessions are theirs when you look at deuteronomy 21 17 there's specific instruction about the firstborn receiving a double portion okay? getting more than the others because of their status as the firstborn so when you look at the situation back in luke chapter 12 uh, this man came to christ and he was asking for one of two things he was either asking for more than what was rightfully his, wanting more than his fair share, an equal portion with the, the firstborn, the older brother, or perhaps he wanted his inheritance before the time. He wanted it sooner than later. 
And so he was coming to Jesus, the rabbi, to, to bring his case, to bring the problem to him so Jesus can hear it and rule on it. He wanted an immediate decision so that way he can go back and say, you have to do this because the rabbi has spoken. It's not just this man making a request. He wanted the authority of Christ as a teacher. And again, that wouldn't be an unreasonable request to ask or even to grant. But what we need to understand is that Jesus is no ordinary teacher. He's no ordinary rabbi. He was not like the rest of the Jewish teachers. And this is where this man went seriously wrong. He saw Jesus as a means to an end. I have a dilemma. There's an inheritance issue. I need it solved. I'm going to go to him. He has the authority. And he's going to make me happy by ruling in my favor. That's all he saw Jesus as. The answer to his problems, his temporal financial problems. Perhaps in his mind he was thinking, I want my inheritance. I deserve this portion. I'm entitled to my fair share. And Jesus can help me get what's rightfully mine. So I'm going to go to this man so I can get what I want. Now, unfortunately, this attitude didn't stay with this man. This attitude is alive and well today, and it's been so for hundreds of years. But I think more so in our country in the past hundred years or so. There are many people within contemporary Christianity who come to Christ and their primary purpose for coming to Christ is because they are seeking wellness or wholeness, not spiritually, but financially, physically, temporally, maybe in their relationships. And, and when they come to Christ, whether, you know, whatever area of their life is broken, they, they see Jesus as something they can add to their lives. Well, I can believe in this, and I can believe in that, and I can follow this pursuit, and if Jesus can help me obtain what I want, then I'll add him to my life as well. I'll throw a little bit of Jesus in there. Now, they may not say that, but that's exactly the way people think. And you can tell when you look at the lives of people because they don't live lives that are in accordance with God's word. They profess to be Christians, but they don't live like Christians. They profess to believe in Jesus Christ, but they also say many roads lead to heaven. They clearly are not true disciples of Christ. Many come with a very sinful, ulterior motive. I will serve you, but you have to do this for me. If you do this, then I will be your disciple. If you fix my marriage, I will be faithful to you. If you get me out of this financial pit, I will be your disciple. If you heal my cancer, if you heal my disease or whatever it is, then I will be indebted to you and I will serve you forever, Lord. Prove yourself, provide for me, and then I will follow you. That's the mentality, and unfortunately, that's the preaching in many pulpits today. That many people who profess to be pastors, profess to be proclaimers of the gospel, are lying to people saying that if you come to Jesus, he will fix all your temporal problems. He will mediate for you, not spiritually, but physically. And he will provide everything you, lead, you need so you can live a fulfilled life. Listen, that is unbiblical and it is sinful to think of Christ as, you know, your, your um, genie in a bottle where you can just ask and he will grant your wishes. But that's exactly the way many people think of him. This man didn't see Christ as a genie in a bottle, but he saw him as exactly what he needed in the legal realm. 
I want my money. I want it now. Jesus, you tell my brother to make it happen. That's all I need you for. I don't need you for anything else other than getting me my money. And so Jesus replies to this man. And as he replies to this man, we see here that Jesus denies him outright. He says, but, but he said to him, man, who appointed me a judge or arbitrator over you? That's not my position. That's not why I'm here. That's not why I came. Who told you that I was here to be your financial advisor? To be some kind of, uh, you know, attorney that's going to help divide the inheritance? Where did you get that mentality? Where did you get that idea? I'm not your judge. Judge here is Maristan. It means a divider of an inheritance. Someone who was focused on taking care of issues like this. Jesus says, I'm not the expert in dividing a family inheritance. Why did you come to me? That doesn't mean Jesus wouldn't know what to do. We understand from Scripture that he was omniscient. He knows everything. Of course he knows what to do. But that's not why he came. That's not his primary purpose as the Messiah. Today, this would be maybe a probate lawyer, or an executor of a will, some estate. Where, where, and if you haven't been in this situation, if you have a person who passes away and they don't leave very detailed instruction of what's supposed to happen and people in charge of making it happen, it can turn into a huge mess. You can have families tearing each other apart over what's left behind. Things can get caught up in court for years and years and years before any answers are given. So it's not wrong to plan in this fashion. It's not wrong to have a probate lawyer or an executor, or an arbitrator in Christ's day. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. Many times, most times, it's necessary. But the mistake that was made was coming to Christ thinking that's why he exists. That's his purpose, is to take care of your temporal needs. And this man was completely unaware of the real reason why Jesus came. If we were to look ahead in the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 19, verse 10, we see why Christ came. The Son of Man has come to seek and save that which was lost. And when you understand the context of Scripture, this means Jesus came to save sinners. He came to provide a sacrifice that would be accepted by God the Father, that all who come through Christ and say, my faith is in him, in his provision, in his life, his death, his resurrection, that I need that applied to my account, to my debt, and that when it's applied to me because I believe in who Christ is and I trust him as the only Savior, then my ledger is wiped clean. The debt in my column is erased. I am no longer indebted to God as a sinner because Christ has paid my price. So in that sense, there is a transaction that takes place. And when you study the, the various terms that are used to describe that transaction, uh, there are legal terms involved there to help us understand that. And so in this sense, Jesus paid this, this greatest transaction price to declare us saved, to declare us whole before God, out of debt, but it's not with physical finances or wealth in mind. He came to save us from our sin. He came to make disciples. But those who see him as simply a source of temporal blessing are like this man. They don't 
really understand why Christ came, and they're going to him for the wrong reasons. In fact, when you look at Scripture, the Bible never teaches that those who come to Christ in salvation are going to have comfortable lives. The Bible never teaches that you're going to have financial stability. The Bible never teaches that you're going to be free from health issues. The Bible never teaches that your family is not going to fight or that, that people in politics or society are not going to rise up against you. In fact, it's quite the opposite. Just look at this one passage, and this is one example of many. Jesus says, do you suppose that I came to grant peace on earth? I tell you, no, but rather division. For from now on, five members in one household will be divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Christ is not saying here that he's some kind of homewrecker, that he wants to destroy families, but when you understand what is required to be a disciple of Christ, you understand that not everyone shares that point of view. That when you say, I believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through him, then guess what that means? That means your family members and your friends who think that there's a different path that they can take to get to whatever they want to call it after this life is over. They want to call it bliss. They want to call it nirvana. They want to call it heaven. They want to call it glory or whatever it is. And you tell them, absolutely not. The only path you're on is the path to condemnation and hell because you're not coming through Christ, well then guess what? Now you have division. Because you cannot believe in Christ and accept every other religion in the world as equal. You absolutely cannot. Jesus makes it very clear that to believe in him is exclusivity. He is the only savior. He is the only mediator between God and man. There are not other roads that lead to heaven. That is why he's a divider. That is why you're not going to have peace between people on earth until Christ comes and makes everything new. Because you will always have those who stand against Christ. Jesus also speaks about the fact that you're not going to become wealthy when you follow Christ as a disciple. Matthew chapter 8, verse 20. He's calling his disciples into service and he says, The foxes have holes. And the birds of the air have nest, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He says, even the animals have their homes, but Jesus is not a homeowner. Jesus didn't own property. He didn't have a huge bank account. In fact, when you look at how they lived as they were traveling through his three and a half years of ministry, they often stayed with other people. And those people would host them and, and care and, and, and tend to them. We see that with friends like Mary and Martha and Lazarus who would provide for their needs. Jesus is not saying it's wrong to own property. He's not saying it's wrong to have a job and make money. What he's saying is, is that's not why I exist. And by becoming my disciple, you are not going to become wealthy. That's not the purpose of ministry. That's not the purpose of serving Christ. That doesn't mean that wealthy people cannot be Christians. There's no doubt about that. Yes, they can. And many wealthy people are. But Christ is saying is your focus cannot be, you know, monetary gain if you're going to be my disciple. That's not why I came. That's not why you serve me. And that's not how I'm going to reward you. The reward is spiritual and the reward is great. And so when you look at the principle here, it's one of priority and focus. 
And Jesus' priority was salvation by fulfilling the law, keeping every aspect of the law that we as humans break, and that's how we violate God's command. That's why we're sinners, because we've broken his established law, whether it's telling a lie or it's coveting or it's, it's committing adultery or whatever it might be. We are all guilty of breaking God's commandments. Christ lived that perfect life, died on the cross as the worst offender, yet he committed no sin, doing that on our behalf, and offering that to God the Father as the perfect sacrifice for sinners, when we come to God through Christ, we will be saved. That's why Jesus came, not to settle temporal disputes over temporal possessions. And that's the first place where this man went wrong. You know, I'm not sure if you're familiar of this crisis, epidemic, as the CDC calls it in our nation, but there is a growing opioid epidemic. Drugs that are used as painkillers primarily where people become addicted to them and many people overdose because they simply cannot stop taking the drugs. They are so powerful, so dangerous. They're highly addictive painkillers and according to the CDC, more than 100,000 people died of drug overdoses in the U.S. during May 2020 and April 2021. Now when you look at that number, 64% died because of an opioid overdose. Drugs like fentanyl and oxycodone and methadone and uh, codeine and morphine, drugs that are often prescribed in hospitals to help ease the pain, many people will get addicted to those. They continue to take them even after they no longer need it medically. And it's become a huge problem in the United States. And, And so much so that the CDC says it's an epidemic. Now, it's a deadly problem. It should be addressed. Anyone who's addicted to alcohol or to any kind of drug needs help. And we should have compassion on those who are in that situation and understand it can happen to anyone, especially those who go into a hospital and they're receiving painkillers for treatment. It's legitimate. And then they find themselves depending on it. That happens all the time. It's a problem that should be addressed because it is a problem of life and death. And the problem there is one of addiction. It gets to the point where you have to have it. Well, when was the last time you heard anyone talk about the addiction to earthly possessions? Probably never. When was the last time you heard anyone say that to to covet is an addiction, a dangerous addiction? And it could be even more dangerous than the opioid crisis. Because if you covet the things of this world, you will never have a love for God. And if you don't have a love for God, when you leave this world, you will have to live your life apart from God. This is not to minimize any addiction anyone has here on earth, but we understand from Scripture that the spiritual is far more valuable than the physical. The eternal is far, uh, it's a far greater price to pay than the temporal. So we need to make sure that we have the right priority. Having this this covetous attitude, and I'm not talking about an occasional wanting something that you don't have. I think we all covet from time to time. We look at something nice, we look at the car we're driving in, and then we see one that pulls up next to us, and we're like, man, that is nice. I mean, it's like what they have and what I have, night and day. I still have to crank my windows to open and close them. 
right? They got AC, right? I mean, you know, you look at things like that. I've seen some of these, you know, houses that they have on, on various HGTV shows and, and some of these houses posted on Zillow and others. And I think, man, our entire house can fit in that master bathroom. <laughs> that is crazy. This guy has a, 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 his own home theater. This guy's got his shooting range in the basement. Look at the size of that backyard. Olympic-sized pool, and there's plenty of room to spare. I mean, how we, we look at that, and we're like, that must be nice. It, it, I mean, we do that. We're human. We see nice things, and we like nice things. But what we're talking about here is someone who is so focused on having material possessions that they are addicted to the things of this world. We're not talking about slipping occasionally and saying, well, that's really nice. Okay, Lord, i got to be realistic here. i got to be content with what I have. And you kind of go back to thinking correctly. I'm not talking about that. We're talking about those who are addicted to the things in this world. And this man clearly was thinking selfishly, and I'll explain that in just a bit. So Jesus issues this warning. He said to them in this proverb, Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. He says you need to be aware, you need to take heed, pay attention. What I'm telling you is important and applies to everyone. Covetousness is dangerous. Covetousness is addictive. It will destroy you. It will cause you to lose focus. And here in verse 15, we get a little more insight into the request of the man. Jesus says, beware and be on guard against every form of what? Of what? Greed. Okay. Now, why do you think Jesus would bring up greed right after he tells this man, that's not why I came, and this man wants the inheritance to be settled? If this man came and all he wanted was rightfully his, but he wanted it sooner than later, we could say he was impatient. I think this man wanted the equal share of what the older brother was going to get. And Jesus says, you're being greedy. You're wanting what's not rightfully yours. Now, we might look at that and say, well, that's not fair, and maybe in our culture it's not. But in theirs, that was the common practice. The firstborn got the greater possession. It seemed that this man wanted more than what was due to him, and he wanted Jesus to make that happen. William Cobbett says this about covetousness. Covetousness breeds misery. The sight of houses better than our own, of dress beyond our means, of jewels costlier than we may wear, of stately equipage and rare curiosities beyond our reach, these hatch the viper brood of covetous thoughts, vexing the poor who would be rich and tormenting the rich who would be richer. Listen, if all you want is what you don't have and what others have, you're never going to be satisfied. You will be tormented by these possessions. Charles Spurgeon said this, poverty wants some things, luxury many things, but covetousness wants all things. You will never be truly satisfied if you are a person who covets things of the world. You'll always want, what? One more dollar. Even a man like Rockefeller who had billions said, one more dollar, just a little bit more. You will never be truly happy. Those who seek their pleasure and fulfillment in the possessions of this world are always going to be disappointed. 
they're never going to be truly fulfilled. And Jesus said that in, in verse 15. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. Your life does not have the fullness of meaning just because you have possessions. And many people think that way. My life will be complete. I will be happy. I will be whole. I will be full. I will be content if I have more. And you won't. Some of the most wealthy people throughout history have also been the most miserable people in history. It's amazing when you find people who live in what we call poverty and they're very happy. They're very content. And you think, how can you be happy with that? And when you've got the right priority, you can be happy renting a, a, a one-bedroom apartment or living in a six-bedroom house. I mean, if you're content in the Lord, you can be happy driving an old Pinto or driving a Tesla. In fact, if you're content, you probably have something in between. You say, well, if I can afford more than a Pinto, that might explode if I get rear-ended. And for those of you who are as old as I am, you understand what that's all about. I don't necessarily need a car that costs hundreds of thousands of dollars. Okay? I'm not saying that you can't have a Tesla, but, you know, you can be happy without it. You can be happy as a renter. You can be happy as an owner. You can be happy as a person making six or seven figures in a, a company and in your career or someone who's living in what we consider the poverty level in our country because it's not about possessions. And that's what Christ is teaching us. He tells them to guard themselves, to be on guard. That's fuloso, to, to watch over, to watch over your mind, watch over your heart. Perhaps he had Proverbs 4.23 in mind. Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. And when you look at the, the Old Testament word for heart, the, the idea there is that it's your, your, your mentality. It's kind of the seat of consciousness, the center of man. So, so guard who you are inside. Guard the way that you think. Guard your heart, because it is going to determine your course of life. You need to be very careful. Listen, before we move on to the parable, understand this. You don't allow yourself to become possessed with the possessions of the world or you will become possessed by the possessions of the world. If you are so enamored with owning the things in this world, they will own you. And you will find yourself addicted to them and you will not be able to break that apart from the saving work of Christ. Well, let's look at the parable now. This is the majority of the text and, and let's move through this. Uh, verses 16 through 21. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself saying, what shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? And then he said, this is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your soul is required of you, and now who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. You know, I just want to point out some observations as we look at the first few verses here, and specifically with the rich man. If you look here at the beginning, we see here the man was already rich. He was already wealthy. 
This man, his land was very productive. He had crops, he had goods, he had grains, but he was not satisfied. He wanted more. When we talk about his crops and his goods, he had more than just food. We don't know the, the specifics of the goods, but perhaps it was livestock and servants and, and maybe other treasures, gold or silver or, or whatever it was that they gathered, acquired at that point in history and saw that as valuable. He had many possessions, and, you know, and, and he wanted a place to store them. I, I thought of, you know, those uh, celebrities who have uh, multiple things, like, uh, is it Jay Leno with all his cars and motorcycles? Garages that can hold dozens of vehicles? I look at that, I'm like, that's pretty cool. That's an awesome one. That's a great one. That's a classic. Yeah, but really, I mean, and I don't know the man. I, I'm not bringing condemnation. I'm just, I don't know, but that seems a little over the top. Remember back in the... I think it was the 80s, and all the talk about how many pairs of shoes Imelda Marcos had. Women, you only got one pair of feet. <laughs> right? I understand you need casual shoes, and you need dress shoes and work shoes. I don't understand how you need a new outfit for every holiday and matching all that stuff. You apparently do. I don't. I don't get that. I've been wearing this jacket since I was in seminary in 2006. I praise God that it still fits. And that it hasn't worn out, I am missing one button, so, you know, it's all right. It's all right. And there's nothing wrong with having more than one pair of shoes. There's nothing wrong with having more than one vehicle. But we can become so deluded and deceived by the things of this world that they become priority. And we think that we are fulfilled in that, and guess what? You're not. This man was amassing an empire of possessions, and he found security in his temporal wealth. And he wanted more. He also relied on his own wisdom and ability. It's interesting when you read this to see how the personal pronouns abound. Look at this. What shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? This is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And then I will say to my soul, this man was self-absorbed. He thought he had everything under control, that he had all the right answers, he had all the ability to make sure that he was secure for the duration of his life. He didn't think anyone else needed to be involved. It was only his knowledge, his abilities. Listen, planning for the future is not selfish. It's not wrong to save money. It's not wrong to have investment accounts. It's not wrong to have a retirement account. It's not wrong to plan for that time when you leave this world and then your children or grandchildren or whoever it is, that things are in order so it's not chaos when you're gone. There's nothing wrong with that. But this man was thinking, I have, I have more, I'm going to have more, I need more space, and guess what? My mind, my soul can be at perfect rest because I've got everything planned out and it's going to work according to my plan. That's what he's saying. That's his delusion. He believed that he can control his future. So he speaks to his soul. He speaks to himself, and he eased his mind. And he says, you know what? From this point on, from, from, from here on out, it's easy street. We've got it made in the what? 
in the shade, right? Again, you got to be a little older for that. You got it made in the shade. But older means we're the good generation, so don't be offended by that. What does he tell his soul? Eat, drink, and be merry. That, that is known as the Epicurean mentality. Epicurus lived in 341 to 270 B.C., and his philosophy was one that we would call hedonism, that you seek out and indulge in pleasures. You eat and you drink. Why? Because tomorrow you die. Eat, drink, and be merry. Live it up. Enjoy it now. Live the good life. It was really this devotion to pleasure and comfort and high living and, and wanting a certain nicety of style and whatever it is, you wanted to make sure that it was good and you enjoyed it. And again, there's nothing wrong with enjoying what God has provided for us. Nothing wrong with enjoying the benefits of hard work, taking a nice vacation or buying you know, clothes that are nice or a vehicle. There's nothing wrong with that. But when you are foolish enough to, to deceive yourself into thinking that everything's good because of what I have done, because of my plan, because of my provision, because of my ability, my wisdom, my knowledge, my power, I'm good. The problem with that is, is you completely forget God. You think that God has no say in the matter of life. And this is where this man went wrong. He was not thinking biblically. James chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. But, that, but as it is, you boast in your arrogance and all such boasting is evil. Therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. Listen, James is telling us there's nothing wrong with planning, but you need to make sure that you understand that you have to live in accordance with the will of God. It might not be God's will that you make it until next year. It might not be God's will that you make it until the end of this sermon. I hope you do. I want to finish, and I don't want to have to have an emergency here, and I don't want to see any of you go anytime soon, but we don't know. We don't know if we're going to make it home safely today. I mean, it's, it's November 28th. We're probably looking forward to Christmas. We don't even know if we're going to see November 29th. It's not wrong to plan, but it's foolish to think that you have the power to control time itself. And you can alter that to work in your favor. So before we move on, let me ask you a few questions. How much are you like the rich man? Are you already wealthy? And I don't mean that you're a millionaire or a billionaire? I mean, do you have what you need for life? Are you satisfied or do you long for more? Maybe you're like Rockefeller, just a dollar more. Then I'll be happy. You need to stop lying to yourself. If you're not happy with what you have now, you will not be happy with more. We need to learn to be content in Christ, whether we have much or whether we have little. Do you rely on your own wisdom and your own abilities? You like the rich man planning your perfect life, planning the perfect job, searching and planning for the perfect spouse and the perfect wedding and marriage and family, the perfect retirement? Nothing wrong with wanting those things and wanting things to be nice. But in the end, you don't really have all the answers and the means to make them happen. 
There's nothing wrong with desiring it. There's nothing wrong with working hard for it. Nothing wrong with praying for it. And if it's God's will, he will give it to you. But if you think you can control it so everything in your little bubble works out perfectly, you are lying to yourself. You don't have that kind of wisdom. You don't have that kind of power. I mean, do you, like this rich man, believe that you control your future or your destiny? I've been involved in a number of weddings as a pastor, and I have seen some brides who have these massive notebooks, plural, notebooks mapping out every aspect of the wedding and the honeymoon, everything. I'm pretty impressed by that. I'm like, wow, that's, that's crazy. I mean, you've got every little detail mapped out. Nothing wrong. I mean, you want things to go well. You, you look forward to your wedding. You want everything to be nice. Great. But I'll tell you what, I have never been involved in a wedding ceremony where everything goes off 100% without a problem. Never. Whether someone has been late or the electricity went out or the weather wasn't what you thought, whatever it might be, it's never been exactly as you thought it would be. Why? Because you cannot control the things of this world. Some things you can, some things you can't. And you have to always leave room in your planning for the sovereignty and the providence of God or just the general course of this fallen world. You can't be so foolish to think you control everything. You don't. It's okay to plan and we should be good stewards, but we simply don't have the control that we often think we do. Well, look at God's response here as he addresses this fool in the parable, and that's exactly what he calls him, you fool. Aphron is the word there. It means that this man was stupid as well as morally and spiritually deficient. This man was just not without knowledge. This man was corrupt in his thinking. It's like the fool in Psalm 53.1 who says there is no God. The fool in his heart says there is no God. This man is a fool in the eyes of God. He thought he had everything figured out, but God said, you are a fool. David Garland says this in his commentary on Luke. It is the fool who says in his heart, there is no God, and by his words and deeds, this man reveals that he is a practical atheist. He has completely forgotten about God. Again, you go back, my crops, I will build, my future, my soul, all these things are about himself, and there's no room for God in his existence. He might not proclaim to be an atheist, but he is a practical atheist, living as if God does not exist. Well, let me ask you a few questions here. Who do you think keeps your brain functioning and your lungs working while you sleep at night? I'll give you a hint. It's not you. None of you last night made sure your brain was firing the way it should. None of you did anything to keep your lungs pumping air into your body. You're not responsible for that. We are responsible to take care of our bodies and, and, and try to live lives that are you know, in line with good health. But in the end, we don't control all of this. Do you ever look forward to the, the, the rising and setting of the sun and the moon? You look at sunsets and you look at full moons, you're in the eclipses, and you're like, wow, beautiful, amazing. When was the last time you had any say over how that happens and when it happens? You can sit back and enjoy it. You can appreciate it. But you have zero control over that. But you know who does? God does. He created it. He controls everything that exists. 
And that's not to say that we are just these robots that have no volition and we can't think. That's not what it means at all. It just means that God is the one who has the ultimate control. We don't as his creation. And God tells us, man, you're a fool. Why? This very night, your soul is required of you. That means to demand back, to exact something due. This is so ironic. I love it. This man tells his soul, soul, we are set for years and years to come. God says, you're a fool, and guess what? I'm taking your soul. You thought your soul was going to live on forever, happy and healthy and wealthy, and guess what? It's gone tonight, you fool. I mean, let me ask you by a show of hands, which one of you know the day and the hour when you're going to die? Do you know when your soul is required? I don't. I've had a few experiences where I thought it's about to be taken, and God spared me. I have no idea. Do you know the, the, the hour when God is going to require your soul? No, you don't. We have no idea. We could be here for many, many years to come, or God could require our souls in an instant. We have to make sure that we live our lives understanding that, whether it's seconds or decades that God has in store for us. This man was planning for his future on earth, but he didn't realize that his death was imminent. Death was standing at the doorstep and knocking, and his soul was going to be required that very night. And so the question is asked of this man. Another irony here in the form of a question. Now who will own what you have prepared? Right? You have grains and you have goods. You have property. You want to build more, but guess what? You ain't taking it with you tonight. Who's going to take everything that you built, you fool? Proverbs or Psalm 39.6. Surely, surely, every man walks about as a phantom. Surely they make an uproar for nothing. He amasses riches and does not know who will gather them. If you look at Ecclesiastes, we understand the author of Ecclesiastes, whether you believe that was Solomon or something else, he was a man who indulged in everything. There was nothing that he held back from himself. He built forests, and he built rivers, and he had servants, and he had gold and silver and bronze and everything, every pleasure he can think of, he had it. And in the end, you see here, there's no satisfaction in it. He says, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with its income. This, too, is vanity. When good things increase, those who consume them increase. So what is the advantage to their owners except to look on? The sleep of the working man is pleasant, whether he eats little or much. But this full stomach of the rich man does not allow him to sleep. There is a grievous evil which I have seen under the sun, riches being hoarded by their owner to his hurt. When those riches were lost through a bad investment and he had fathered a son, then there was nothing to support him. As he has come naked from his mother's womb, so he will return as he came. He will take nothing from the fruit of his labor that he can carry in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Exactly as a man is born, thus he will die. So what is the advantage to him who toils for the wind? 
Throughout his life, he also eats in darkness with great vexation, sickness, and anger. You came to this world empty, you leave empty, meaning empty-handed. And if you are striving and toiling for riches, guess what? You're going to live in darkness and vexation and sickness and anger because you cannot take it with you and you will never be satisfied. You find this principle throughout Scripture. Again, make no mistake, having nice things is not wrong, but you cannot let these possessions become the main thing. You know, there are some really bad investments that have made throughout history. I just want to share a few with you as we wrap things up here. Number 10, AOL Time Warner merger. says, you've got fail. In 2000, the $400 billion marriage of AOL and Time Warner was the largest in business history. Unfortunately, high hopes and bad timing quickly turned green light to red ink as the deal sent profits plunging. Um, by the way, Anyone still have AOL? Probably not. Kodak didn't get the picture. Here's another one. In the mid-1970s, Eastman Kodak, which controlled 90% of the U.S. film market, developed a product that would num one day make their uh, number one product obsolete, the digital camera. Rather than compete with themselves, Kodak decided to sit on digital and not invest in developing it. Big mistake. By the early 1980s, Fuji entered the U.S. market, offering lower-priced film and photographic supplies. By 2012, Eastman Kodak wound up filing for Chapter 11 bankruptcy, largely by its own hand. Its digital camera patent expired in 2007. Okay. Let's look at another good one here. There's quite a few. How about this one? He dismissed Bell's telephone as a toy. For every life-changing technological breakthrough in history, it seems there was at least one skeptic who doubted its potential. That group includes William Orton, president of Telegraph Business Western Union, who in 1876 decided to pass when offered the patent for the telephone by its inventor, Alexander Graham Bell. Here's what he said. After careful consideration of your invention, while it is a very interesting novelty, we have come to the conclusion that it has no commercial possibilities. What could this company make of an electrical toy? I don't know. Tell me. <laughs> right? I, I love this one here. Fox gives up a universe of Star Wars money. If you thought director George Lucas was ahead of his time with Star Wars franchise, you don't know the half of it. Before we met Princess Leia or Chewbacca, Lucas pulled off one of the most lucrative deals in Hollywood when he agreed to a $20,000 pay cut in exchange for the merchandising rights for Star Wars and all of its sequels. Not only did 20th Century Fox fail to realize that a crazy space movie would spawn a worldwide following, just visit my office one day and you'll see, but the studio also missed that the characters would literally jump off the screen and be worth a mint in merchandise. At last tally, action figures and other Star Wars paraphernalia have contributed to $3 billion to Lucas's $5.2 billion fortune. How about the Beatles? In the annals of rock music, Decca Records doubtlessly holds a top spot for business tone deafness. Decca talent scouts Mike Smith and Dick Rowe caught an early gig by the Beatles in Liverpool and invited them to London to audition. The lads ran through 15 songs in two hours and waited weeks to receive the bad news. Rowe dropped the mic on Beatles manager Brian Epstein. Not to mince words, Mr. Epstein, but we don't like your boy's sound. 
groups are out, four-piece groups with guitars are particularly are finished. The Fab Four signed with EMI, and within two years, they were so successful, then even tapped DECA to help them meet the screaming demand for vinyl from their worldwide fans. Talk about a huge investment mistake. Well, when you come back to this fool, he made a horrible investment mistake. He invested in himself. He invested in possessions. And God says that if you do that, you were like this rich fool. So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. He pursued possessions in this life, but he left disappointed and empty-handed. And the same will be true of everyone who follows his vain pursuits. You're always going to be disappointed and empty-handed if you want to cling to the things of this world, if you become addicted to the things in this world. That is why Jesus said, Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. When God is your primary pursuit and your pleasure, he will provide everything that you need in this world, and you will never lose what truly counts and lasts into eternity. Father, we come before you. We thank you so much for this morning and for this opportunity to study your word. I pray, Lord, that we would understand what has been uh, taught this morning, that I was accurate and that I was clear, and that uh, we understand, Lord, the, the importance of it, that we do not become uh, enamored and, and in love and, and addicted to the things of this world. Father, I pray that our greatest affection, our greatest joy is you that we understand that all the blessings we have through Christ are greater than all of the amassed wealth throughout history here on earth. Father, we thank you for blessing us richly through your Son. And I pray that this morning, uh, for those of us who have faith in Christ, that we would understand that and we would uh, embrace it and, and be even more content in the years to come. Father, perhaps there are people here this morning who have been pursuing uh, fulfillment or joy or pleasure, whatever it might be, in the things of this world, but not in you. I pray that they would repent of that this morning, that you would open their eyes, their ears, their hearts to understand that apart from you, they could never truly be satisfied. But through Christ, if they embrace him and the work he's done on their behalf and trust in him through faith and ask you for that salvation and the blessings that come with it, they will never be disappointed. I pray that maybe someone this morning, Lord, would just call out to you and, and ask for that salvation, that reconciliation with you, and all the promises of glory that you have given to us through your word. Father, we pray as we leave this morning that we will continue to serve you well, that we will live for the glory of your name, and that we will take these truths and share them with others so that they too can have the wonderful hope that we have in Christ. We thank and we praise you in his precious name. Amen.